Good evening, everyone. Erev Tov. It's going to take me a while not to say welcome to Echoes of Eden. Uh, I have to get out of that habit, but welcome to the Son and the Scriptures as we begin uh, a new cycle in the Torah. And as we do so, uh, you're going to get uh, your bang for your buck this evening uh, because I have quite a bit for us, but I think it's important at the beginning that we kind of set the stage for really what the, the entire year is going to be about as we <clears throat> look at the Torah from this particular perspective, uh, and so it'll be worth our investment there. Also, if you didn't grab a handout, I think there should be some still available in the back. Uh, there also, if you want one later, you can get them on the website. Uh, there's also a handbook that goes with the Son and the Scriptures. Uh, if you didn't grab one of those, it's in the back as well, and I'll bring some next week uh, so that we'll have plenty in stock. Uh, it just kind of includes some of the blessings that we say in the class, uh, some of the prayers that we've encountered or will encounter. Uh, it includes the reading schedule, and so how the reading schedule works is it will list uh, the reading by date for the Sabbath. So um, I think on the reading schedule, something like October 14th is Bereshit, Genesis 1. Uh, we always will be the Monday before that reading. Uh, and so October 9th is obviously the Monday before the 14th. And so that's why we are starting uh, this week for the whole week is really uh, that week is that portion uh, and so be sure you grab one of those. It also has the Hebraic toolbox, which is something that we will refer to quite a bit uh, in our time together and even some of it this evening. So make yourself available to that. It's also will be available on the website, the Sun and Scriptures page. There will be that handbook that you can download as a PDF. Uh, also... Um, <clears throat> You know, many of you probably are aware of the challenges that are going on in Israel. Uh, as far as I've been in contact with my teachers and my friends there, they're all uh, safe. They're all in good places at the moment. Uh, but the sages of blessed memory have always told us that when the people of Israel are under threat, are in difficult situations, and we may find ourselves helpless to do anything about it, that the two things we can do that do merit uh, good things for Israel is one is to recite Tehillim, uh, that is uh, pray the Psalms, uh, be regular with the Psalms, and the other is to study Torah. Uh, and so this evening we dedicate the study of Torah to those that are in the land of Israel. Israel uh, and those who have passed away, may their memory indeed be a blessing. So that is where we are going to be headed this evening. Uh, so let's get started now with the blessing that goes before the study of Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam, asher kedishanu b'mitzvotav v'sevanu le'sok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments has commanded us to be immersed into the words and the matters of Torah. Amen. All right, so what is the Son in the Scriptures really all about? Uh, so I want to summarize kind of the perspective that we're going to be doing for the next year as we go through the Torah. Uh, every, every week we're going to be doing it from this perspective and then kind of concluding uh, with a section called Making It Personal. Then how can we take what's in that week's portion 
and maybe apply it to some aspect of our life uh, and make it a little uh, more relevant and down to earth. Uh, so what I want us to think about is kind of in the end of the Gospel of Luke, uh, after the resurrection, there is the incident with Jesus, uh, the resurrected Jesus, on the road to Emmaus, a small town outside of the city of Jerusalem called Emmaus. And there on Emmaus, he encounters two of his disciples. In fact, uh, at least one of those two was an actual family member, uh, that you can figure that out if you carefully watch the names in the Gospels. Uh, but for whatever reason... God chose to kind of blind them to the fact of recognizing who Jesus was. And so because of that, they end up having a conversation with Jesus. And in that conversation, Jesus reveals uh, to them, but also to us, how do we have an encounter with the risen Jesus? Uh, because it actually isn't about having a physical encounter with the risen Jesus, because these individuals were having that physical encounter, and yet it wasn't enough. So they needed something else to have that actual experience of the risen Jesus. What was the experience that they needed? And when we find that in the text in the Gospel of Luke, we'll find out why we are gathered here this evening to study those same texts. So two disciples of Jesus, they leave Jerusalem on Sunday morning after the passion, after the crucifixion, after the death of Jesus. And for these two disciples, that seemed to be it. Uh, it ended with the death of Jesus. And the Passover had come to a conclusion, and so they were now returning back to their native village, uh, the town known as Emmaus. And as they walked discussing those perplexing events of the previous several days, Jesus comes and he joins them on the road, walking with them, but they don't recognize him. They take him for simply another Passover pilgrim, another pilgrim who went to the city of Jerusalem because it was the festival of Passover and was simply on the same road back home. And then Luke tells us these words. Luke tells us, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And so unaware of Jesus' presence, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus had the same information regarding the resurrection that you and I have right now. That is, they had eyewitness testimony of the women at the tomb, just like we do. And they have the evidence that that tomb was empty, just like you and I do. But sometimes evidence isn't enough. To truly believe in the resurrection, to truly believe in a resurrected Messiah, to truly have an experience with the living Christ, we need to personally experience him. So let's look some more at the text. Luke 24, verses 31 and 32, it says, Then their eyes were opened. Something happened where their, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight, and they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road and while he was explaining the scriptures to us? So Jesus did not say to his disciples, Hey, look, it's me, I'm alive. Hey, Uncle Clopas, don't you remember me? Don't you recognize me, your nephew, Jesus? Rather, he begins to teach them from the Torah. 
And he teaches them from the prophets all about the Messiah and how everything that had transpired in those previous days was already forewritten about the Messiah and his entering into his glory. And so, from the text in Luke, then beginning with Moses, that means the Torah, and with all the prophets, he, meaning Jesus, explained to them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. So did you catch it? Because it's very, very important that you catch this. It was through the Torah and it was through the prophets that Jesus showed himself to them. It wasn't through the four Gospels. It wasn't through the epistles of Paul. It wasn't through the letters of John. It was through the Torah that they began to know who Jesus really was. It is through the Torah that their eyes were opened to who the Messiah was. That is how they had their personal experience with Jesus, the risen Christ. And that is why for us as followers of the Messiah, it's vital that we also study and know the Torah because the very things that made the risen Christ a real experience to those on Emmaus's road are the same words that make him real and relevant and actually present for us today. Later, these disciples remarked, as we had read, how their hearts burned within them as Jesus spoke. And that's what I want for us as we go through the Torah together. I want us as we study these words of Moses that our hearts would burn within us. And by the time they reached Emmaus, the two disciples no longer needed to actually see Messiah to believe in him. And that's why he disappears from their presence. He was alive, but he was alive through the word. He was alive through the Torah. The resurrection had been proven to them through the testimony of the scriptures, specifically the Torah and the prophets. They had seen the living Messiah through the words of Moses. And so that's why we study the Torah year after year after year. I think this is the 14th consecutive year that I have taught Torah from Genesis to Deuteronomy. And every year I teach it, I learn new things. I experience new things. I grow deeper in my relationship with Messiah. And so we read them over and over again so that our hearts can burn within us. Again, from the text, it says this. Later that evening, when he appeared in the midst of the twelve, he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled, are filled full. And in John's Gospel, uh, Jesus is recorded as saying these words. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he, meaning Moses, wrote about me. So why do we study the Torah? Because it's all about our Messiah. It's all about Messiah. How late into the night did that crash course in Messianic Torah commentary go for those disciples of Emmaus? As he taught, each insight opened new layers of meaning. Each revelation burst open whole worlds of understanding. And the disciples and the others in the room were drawn into Jesus' words 
as they found themselves wandering through Bereshit and Shemot, Vayikra, Bamidbar, and Devarim, that is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they found their living Messiah in the words of Yeremiahu, Yehezkiel, Zechariah, that is Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah. In the words of Yeshayahu, the prophet Isaiah, they heard in the songs of David, the songs of their Messiah and the son of David singing those words to them. And so they learned together. And our hearts long to hear the teaching as well. So, our new Torah series, The Son and the Scriptures. It's designed for us to walk on the Emmaus Road and to lift the veil and reveal the person of Messiah within the Torah. So as we go through, we're going to look and find those shadows and those hints and those types and those glimpses into Messiah found in the words of Moses' Torah. That's what we're going to do. Again, from John's Gospel, he says, Search the Scriptures, because in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And when Jesus says, search the scriptures, what are the scriptures for Jesus? They're not the four gospels. They're not the epistles of Paul. They're not the epistles of Peter. It's not Jude. It's not Revelation, right? The scriptures for Jesus were the Torah, the prophets, and the Psalms. And that is why uh, he declared through the psalmist, Here I am. It is written about me in the volume of the scroll. That's in Hebrews 10, verse 7, quoting Psalm 40, verse 7. The scroll, the Torah scroll. So the Torah is the word of God. Jesus is the word made flesh. So we're going to, in our time together, sit in the dust of the sages. See what those ancient commentaries, including those traditions that preceded the time of Jesus' earthly incarnation on our planet. And we're going to diligently look for the clues of Messiah and discover Jesus in each week's Parsha, each week's section. So with that, let's get started, shall we? So Bereshit covers Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and goes through uh, just the very beginning of chapter 6. So essentially the first five chapters of Genesis. Bereshit is the name of the book of Genesis in Hebrew. And it's important that we know that because Bereshit in Hebrew means in the beginning. In the beginning. Now, why that becomes important is we're even going to see in a little bit when we look into the Gospel of John, the phrase, they, did, they, they didn't have chapters and verses and in many ways um, names for books of the Bible the way we do. Instead, they referred to them by key words. And so for a book of the Bible, the key word for that book was usually the first word in that book, Bereshit. So when you read things like in the Gospels, when Jesus says something like, have you not read that in the beginning... That really, if you really want to translate that, it should say, have you never read the book of Genesis? Because for Jesus, in the beginning meant the book of Genesis. So when we begin to see that, we'll begin to see references to Genesis in the Gospels that tie into the Messiah, that then help us understand more in depth what's being discussed in the beginning, in the book of Genesis. So, the opening verse of 
the book of Bereshit, the book of Genesis. We're going to read the opening two verses. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Uh, For tonight's purposes, you can maybe see there, I have spirit and moving over the surface of the waters kind of drawing our attention because that's where I want us to focus. There's so many places you could go uh, just in this verse and there are about six years of archives online for you to find out the other perspectives I've taken on this verse, including in the beginning is really not the best translation of that opening word. Uh, But for tonight, we're going to focus in on spirit moving over the surface of the waters. Because we want to see in that a shadow of the Messiah and then enable it to help us understand more of what the disciples of Jesus at times were experiencing. And also we need to understand that in the New Testament and in the Gospels, when they quote the Old Testament, rarely, they do it sometimes, they'll say, as the prophet Isaiah says, and occasionally as it's written in Jeremiah. But they certainly don't give you chapters and verses because it didn't exist. But most of the time, they don't even reference the name of the book. Rather, they allude to it. They allude to it through the use of certain words as well as certain themes. And so sometimes we miss that. And I think sometimes we miss it in very important places. So one Sabbath morning in a Nazareth synagogue, a young Jew, a local carpenter, the son of a carpenter, he stood up because he was recognized to be the Torah scholar in the midst. You see, in a synagogue, the one who is considered the greatest scholar of the scriptures is always asked to read from the prophets. They have a lectionary, and they read from the Torah first. And then following the Torah, the most gifted individual in the congregation is invited to come forward and read from the prophets. So in Luke 4, when Jesus goes into that Nazareth synagogue, and when he is handed the scroll of Isaiah, that is telling us he is what's known as the maftir, M-A-F-T-I-R, the maftir. He is recognized by everyone in that room as the one who knows the most stuff. And so he steps up. And he takes the scroll of the prophet Isaiah that was handed to him. It's unrolled to him. And then the text says in Luke 4, and it was found the place where it's written. Because what would happen is there would be someone who would carry the scroll up. They would open the scroll. They would take a little thing that looked like a finger. It's called a yad, which is Hebrew for finger, because you didn't want to touch the sacred scriptures. And then they would find where the person was supposed to begin reading, and they would point that finger at it. And so the text says, and when the place was found where it was written, Jesus reads these words. He says, the spirit, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel. And then he told those in attendance, today the scripture has been filled full in your hearing. In doing so, he was essentially making a claim that he was the anointed one, the Messiah. But notice the text begins by saying, the spirit of the Lord is is upon me. 
What is the spirit with which the Lord anointed Jesus, the son of Joseph, the son of the carpenter, the carpenter himself? It was the same anointing spirit spoken of in Isaiah the prophet, chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. This messianic prophecy was no doubt familiar with everyone in that Nazareth synagogue because the town of Nazareth was a relatively new town and it was named after this prophecy in Isaiah. So they absolutely knew this scripture. Their village, Nazareth, Netzeret in Hebrew, was named after the passage. The Hebrew word for branch, which is a title for the Messiah, is Netzer. So Nazareth is branch town because the people of Nazareth were those who belonged to the house of David, but they were being persecuted by Herod because Herod wanted to be king of the Jews. And so Herod was snuffing out anybody that had Davidic dynasty connections. And so a group of those of the house of David went outside of Herod's jurisdiction and set up a new town in the Galilee, and they called it Branch Town because they said, from us, the branch is going to shoot forth, the branch of Jesse, the Messiah. So again, no doubt, they know this prophecy. And that's why in Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, Matthew says it was prophesied he would be called a Natsri, a Nazarene, one from Nazareth. The text from Isaiah, let's look at it a little bit closely. Then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch, a Netzer, from its roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. You hear that emphasis of the spirit connecting itself to this individual that's the branch of Jesse, the stem of Jesse, the anointed one, the Messiah, the promised servant of Isaiah. One of the ways you will know him is because of the spirit that is upon him. And so the prophet Isaiah is telling us that the coming king, he will be a descendant of the line of David, a stem of Jesse. Moreover, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. But this is the interesting thing. In an ancient collection of Jewish Bible interpretation known as the Midrash, it says something interesting about this spirit of the Lord depicted in Isaiah that rests upon the messianic king. It says that that same spirit that Isaiah speaks upon is resting upon the anointed one of the father, that that is the same spirit that moved over the primeval waters of creation. And so this is the quote from Midrash Rabbah. The spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. This was the spirit of Messiah as it is written, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. In other words, when we're reading Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, and we read about the Spirit hovering over the water, we have to divorce ourselves of our Christian initiation, and we cannot think of the Trinity, and we cannot think of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. That is not what is being referred to there. That is not what's being referred there at all. That Spirit that was hovering over creation was none other than the Spirit of the Messiah himself and we're going to keep flushing this out and we're going to see that this is the way the gospels understand it as well 
According to the ancient rabbis, the spirit of Messiah spoken of in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, is the spirit of God that was present at the creation of the world. Thus, the spirit of God that anointed Jesus is the same spirit that moved upon the surface of the water. Listen to these words from Psalm 77, 19. Keep them in mind. Your way was in the sea, and your paths in the mighty waters, and your footprints may not be known. His footprints on the water are not known because footprints on the water, feet that walk upon the water, leave no print. So, let's see how all of this can help us put together what's really happening in Matthew chapter 14, verses 25 through 27. There in Matthew, we read this. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them, walking on the sea. Your way was in the sea, your paths upon the mighty waters. But when the disciples saw him on the sea, they were terrified. I want you to keep in mind, if you read this in Hebrew, the word for terrified here, this literally means like, You had your pants scared off of you, okay? And they said this. They did not say, naughty translations. They did not say it's a ghost. No, 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 no. They don't believe in ghosts anymore than you believe in ghosts. See how we sometimes dumb down these disciples? These were righteous men. These were men who knew their scriptures. And saying this is a ghost... They said it's a ruach. It's a ruach. It's a spirit. Ah, verbal tallies. Your toolbox. Where's the first time this word ruach occurs in the Bible? Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. It was the ruach hovering over the waters, leaving no footprints. And then it says they cried out in fear. It's a different word here for fear than what was used just a few words earlier for terrified. That's muy important. They went from having their pants scared off of them to having ira. Awe and fear of the Lord, a word that's used exclusively for when you know you're in the presence of God. So they went from being truly scared, as you might imagine that word to mean, to knowing they were in the presence of God. Why did they know they were in the presence of God? Because they saw a ruach hovering over the waters. And that's why Jesus speaks to them and says, take heart, it's I. You don't have to be your pants scared off of you. Because you have Irah, and I am the Ruach. So they were not to be scared, but in awe. Because what they were witnessing was Genesis 1, verse 2. And the spirit of the Messiah was hovering over the waters and leaving no footprints. That's what they were experiencing. Which means what Matthew's hinting at in his gospel at a much deeper level is he's invoking creation. He's invoking creation. 
He's invoking the creation account. And when he does that, he's letting you know that Jesus is this vehicle of recreation or the new creation. Also in the ancient world, the waters and the sea, they symbolize the forces of chaos because often when people head at it on a boat in the sea, they weren't seen again. God's spirit moves above and over the chaos. And so too the Messiah strides over the waters as the scriptures say, he came to them walking on the sea just as was prophesied about him. In the psalm, Psalm 77, your way was in the sea, your paths upon the mighty waters, and your footprints are not known. You see, what they realized at some level was this was the Ruach hovering over the waters. Let's keep going in the text. One more verse down, just the opening line. This is where we're going to find a really important connection to the Gospel of John. In fact, we're going to find kind of the basis of the Gospel of John's theology here. Genesis 1, verse 3, we just have this phrase from that verse. Then God said. Then God said. The Torah depicts God creating the universe through the agency of speech. Very important lesson for us as well. Our speech is a creative force. We create entire worlds with our speech. We destroy worlds with our speech. Our speech is powerful. We are created in the image of God. And so just as speech was God's creative force, so too it's part of our creative force as well. So God speaks, and when he speaks, there is. His spoken word is the tool with which he creates. In the days of the apostles and for a few centuries thereafter, there were what were known as the Aramaic paraphrases of the Torah called the Targums. And there the Targums again took the Hebrew text that was read in the synagogue and for those who couldn't understand Hebrew, they would then paraphrase or summarize what was read in Aramaic, the language of the people. And again, it wasn't a translation was a paraphrase and in many ways it was a theological interpretation and so when we read the targums we are reading the study bible that jesus read we're reading the study bible that the apostles were brought up on these were the words that taught them what the scriptures said and so one of the things these aramaic paraphrases were very careful to do was not to make God too human-like. They wanted to keep this aspect of God as transcendent. They guarded that very, very heavily. And so they wanted then to figure out, well, how do we speak about God interacting in our world then? Because they knew that God wasn't just transcendent. They also knew that he was imminent. They knew that he acted in the affairs of humanity. They knew he was very much a part of their daily life. So how could they talk about God in this sort of way when they summarize the Torah? The Jewish theologians of the day again understood God to be infinite, and they considered his intersection with the finite almost an impossibility, but yet they knew it happened. So they had to think of a philosophical construct, a way to talk about it. So think about it. How can the infinite God 
fit into our universe? How can the infinite fit into a finite box? Therefore, what the commentators of the Targums did is they theologically conceived of an abstraction of the totality of God whereby God could interact with finite time and space. And they regarded this abstraction of God as a projection of the infinite into the finite form, and they called it the Word. They called it the Word. Now, in Aramaic, that term is mimra. In Greek, it's lagos. In English, it's the Word. But what that is, it's the idea that this infinite God is also filled with creativity. He's filled with vision. He's filled with plans. In many ways, you could say he's filled with thoughts. And so what they said was, what interacts with us are his thoughts, his creativity. That's his word. He created with this word. So how does he interact? How does the infinite interact with the finite? He does so through his memra. He does so through his mind. He does so through his thoughts. He does so through his creative force. Much like you as an individual can't be separated from your thoughts, and yet imagine, though, if everything you thought actually became a reality. Imagine if you had that superpower. If you thought about it, it happened, right? Then you would quickly become known not just as you, but also by the physical reality of your thoughts all around. That's the memra. That's the word of God, okay? I want to read to you. I want you to imagine you're in a synagogue in the first century in the Galilee. And they've just read to you Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. If you want to look at those three verses, you can. But imagine you didn't understand a word that was said. You just heard, Bereshit bara lahim ehashamayim v'hayeretz. And you're like, I don't, I don't. He could be reading the Declaration of Independence for all I know. How do I know he's reading Genesis 1, 1 through 3? And then someone comes up and says, <clears throat> I will now explain to you, not translate, I will now explain to you what was just read in Genesis 1, 1 through 3. This is from the Targum. This is how you would have heard it. From the beginning, with wisdom, the word, the memra, the lagos of the Lord, created and perfected the heavens and the earth. So you notice that connection? What was it about God that created? It was his memory. It was his word. It was his thought. It was his creative force. And the word of the Lord said, let there be light. And there was light by his memra, by his logos, by his word. In other words, the Sitzim Laban of the first century Galilee was that The world was created, yes, by God, but more specifically by an aspect of God called the Word. The Targum depicts the Mimra as the active agent of God ordering and creating the universe. The Mimra then almost takes on a personification. 
It is the active agent of God that orders and creates the universe. And with that thought in mind, we crack open the Gospel of John and his first verses. In the beginning, oh, oh, what did I tell you the Hebrew word was? Bereshit. So John begins his gospel with Bereshit, which means he's wanting you to do what? Think about Bereshit. To think about Genesis 1, verse 1. He's letting you know by that verbal tally, that verbal clue, that quotation. He is quoting Genesis there. That is a quote from Genesis. And by quoting it, he's invoking it. And he's taking you back there and he's saying, I'm going to tell you something more about creation. I'm going to tell you something about it. In the beginning was the word, the logos, the memra, fitting in perfectly with Targum theology. And this memra was with God. And this memra was God, right? Just as your thoughts are part of you, inseparable from you, so here. The memra was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. Again, the idea that the memra, the logos, the word, is the active agent of God ordering and creating the universe. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that was come into being. John almost sounds just like the Targum. And it came to pass then in a certain finite time, in a certain finite place, as the Gospel of John goes on, that he lets us know that this memra of God finally intersected into our three-dimensional space and time, not by just some object out there like Trees, boom, there's trees, mm, mountains, there's mountains, mm, rivers, there's rivers, mm, deer, there's deer. But eventually, that thought, that creative agent, that creative force that's inseparable from God, but the part of God that interacts with this creation, takes on flesh. John 1, verse 14. And the memra became flesh and dwelt among us. And then in Matthew's version, was found to be with the Holy Spirit. Stay in Genesis 1, 3. We'll go past, then God said. So, then God said, let there be light. And there was light. It's always good to remind people when you're reading Genesis to look at all the days of creation. On what day of creation were the sun, the moon, and the stars created? And you can cheat and look if you would like. The fourth day. Okay. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. Are we on the fourth day? Again, you can cheat. No, we're not on the fourth day yet. We haven't even got through day one yet. And yet there's light. So this has absolutely nothing to do with physical light. And that's very hard for us to read, let there be light, and not have us go to children's books and have images of light, like a black sky and some kind of gold beam coming down or 
even putting incorrectly stars in the sky and so forth. None of that's been created yet. So this can't be what we call physical light. It has to be something else. It's a divine light that proceeds independent of any luminary. That's its fundamental kind of mode of operation. It's independent of any luminary. Because again, remember the sun, the moon, the stars, and all of that hasn't yet been created. There's not yet a natural source of light in creation. And yet, we're told, there was light. Imagine light that shines forth without a light source. In the days of the apostles, Rabbi Eliezer, also known as Lazarus, taught that the light of the first day of creation was miraculous. It was a wondrous light, again, independent of a luminary. He said it enabled one to see from one end of the world to the other. In other words, this light is kind of like consciousness, awareness. It's what enables one to see. But when God saw that man would sin, Rabbi Eliezer says, and wickedness would prevail upon the earth, he concealed that light. He withdrew it. And actually, scriptures do teach this. Job chapter 38, verse 15, from the wicked, the light has been withheld. It's referring back to the light of creation. That there was this immediate kind of strict, high-level spiritual consciousness beamed into our creation, but almost just as quickly withdrawn. He removed the divine radiance from the world and concealed it for the time to come. Tractate Chagiga. This thought process is found in your New Testament. Before you're like, what are you talking about? The light was concealed and it's going to be revealed again at a later time and so forth. Oh, I don't know. That's what the whole book of Revelation's about. We read the Apostle John was given a glimpse of that age to come when he saw the new Jerusalem. And what does he report in Revelation 21? And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it. We don't need no stinking fourth day of creation. For the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp, oh, here's, he's, he's interpreting Genesis 1-3 for you. What is that light? It's the lamp. And the nations will walk by its light. It's the divine light of creation that has returned to earth, is what John is seeing. It's the original good light of the first day being revealed again. It's the new creation. And the light is the glory of God and the source of the illumination is the Lamb. Messiah is the light. Revelation 22, verse 5. They will not have need of the light of a lamp. It doesn't need a source, nor the light of the sun. Again, taking you all the way back to the first day of creation. Because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. Messiah is the light. And he told us that himself when he said he's the light of the world. When he says that, he's equating himself back to Genesis. He's the light of creation. In the popular Yiddish anthology of teaching, 
and the Midrash by uh, Rabbi Yaakov ben Yitzhak Ashkenazi, the light of creation is compared to Messiah. I want to read to you this, this very ancient teaching. It says, the Torah tells us, God said, let there be light. Genesis 1, verse 3. He did this to reveal that God would ultimately illuminate Israel with the light of the Messiah, of whom it is written, Arise and shine, for your light has come. The light being, of course, none other than the Messiah. The verse, Let there be light, in Genesis, therefore teaches that God created the world through this light. And this light is none other than Messiah, which is why after this light came into being, Creation itself began through it. And that's from the Tezine Yorena, uh, quoting in Isaiah 60, verse 11, commenting on Genesis 1, 3. The Apostle John, again, follows this line of interpretation. He teaches that the divine light, which he equates with the divine word, the, the Mimra, the Lagos, through which all things were created, is Messiah, the light that has shone in the darkness. Again, flipping back to the Gospel of John in its first chapter. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Again, from the Midrash, just from the Pesquita Rabbah, it says this, quote, who is this light which falls upon the people of the Lord? It is none other than the light of the Messiah himself. Daniel chapter 2, verse 22, tells us that one of the names of Messiah, one of the names he'll be known by, is light, because he personifies the dwelling presence of God. Quote, God reveals the proud and the hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. And so what we see, therefore, in the Midrash, the Talmud, the apostolic writings, they all agree in associating Messiah with the light of the first day of creation. So now when you go back this week and you reread portion Bereshit, Genesis 1 through 5, and you're in those opening verses, you already have places to be understanding where Messiah is present. He's present hovering over creation. He's present in the word being spoken. He's the creative agent. He's what's giving the force and the substance to everything. And he's also the light that is illumining everything before there's any source of light. Just as that light of creation was revealed, concealed, and be revealed again, so too Messiah has been revealed. He's now concealed, and he will be revealed again. And so we learn from that light the pattern of our Messiah. It was revealed, it was concealed, but not gone, but then revealed, to be revealed again. Same with our Messiah. He is the original light that is reserved for the time to come. Colossians 1 verse 26. The mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. Now, in your handbook for the Son and the Scriptures, there is the Hebraic toolbox. I would encourage you to become familiar with it. Um, just read it over, and throughout our time together, we're going to come back to those over and over again. One of the prominent tools in that box is the one that tells us 
Names are never just names. Names are never just names. Places are never just places. Numbers are never just numbers. And so with that, I want us to look at the individual Seth. Seth. And I want to see why is he called Seth? Right? It's not like Adam and Eve sat around and thought, you know, what's trending on TikTok for names for babies right now? You know, what's the popular name for 4002 BC or something like that? Like, when they chose a name in the Bible, it was speaking to that person's essence, their destiny, their character, everything. A lot was invested in the name. That's why when the Bible has a renaming of someone, it's very, very significant because it also means what they were is no more. They're a new creation. They're something new, and they have a new mission. They have a new destiny. They have a new focus. They have a new identity that's now invested in their new name. So what's going on with Seth? And we're going to see it's actually deeply connected with the very first gospel promise in the Bible. So in your toolbox, there's also the law of firsts. The law of firsts. The first time something happens, first time of words, you know. The classic thing I like to give you for homework on that is find out when the first time love is used in the Bible. If you've done that before, you'll find out it's used in Genesis when a father has such immense love for a son that he's still willing to to sacrifice. The first time a word is used, the first time something happens, it sets the tone for the rest of the scriptures and their following. It's all flows from it. And so what's the first gospel promise? It occurs in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So this week's portion has the very first gospel promise. And it describes kind of a, a battle between the seed of Eve a descendant, a child of Eve, and the serpent. And they're both going to give each other essentially death blows. But only one's going to come out alive again. That's kind of what the whole thing is being described. It's the first gospel promise that God's going to do something about the problem of the fall, the problem of sin and creation. Genesis 3, verse 15 is God's first promise and his first declaration on what he's going to do about it. And we're going to find in there that is where Eve gets Seth's name. Genesis chapter 4, verse 25. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. And she tells you why she named him Seth but we might miss it because they translate the Hebrew and you don't catch the wordplay, which we're going to unpack. Because she says, this is why I named him Seth, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. Genesis 3.15, as I talked about, the first gospel promise of the entire Bible, Eve understood that promise to mean her seed. And she probably took it, quite literally, not meaning like, oh, I'm going to have a child that's going to have a child that's going to have a child that thousands of years from now is going to be the Messiah. She probably took it, as 
I would say Seth is proof she took it very literal. She herself was going to give birth to this Messiah. She herself was going to give birth to this one whose heel would be bitten, which is why if you look at very ancient artwork or Byzantine icons of crucifixions of Jesus, always pay attention to what's going on with his heel. Okay? There's a bite there. And so she understands, oh, she understood that promise literally. She understood it to mean Messiah. She understood it to mean Redeemer. She understood it to mean Savior. And she understood it to mean from her. When Cain was born, she might have assumed he could be a promised seed. But he proved not to be. And he killed the other son. And so when Cain was born, she says these words. I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Her declaration suggests that the conception and birth are more than just mere functions of biology. She acknowledged God's active role in creating this human being. But more than this, she said that Cain was gotten with the Lord. It's a little bit of a foreshadow of the incarnation. She's attributing almost the paternity. In the, in the Hebrew, she's almost attributing the paternity of Cain to God himself. After Cain slew Abel and disqualified himself as the Messiah, she again conceived and bore Seth. And Scripture says that she named him Seth, which in Hebrew is Shet. Shet. Because, quote, God has appointed Shet. Same root, just different parsing. God has appointed Seth, me another offspring. Genesis 4, verse 25. By naming him Seth, or Shet, she's alluding back to the Messianic promise in Genesis 3.15, where God used the same word, Shet, when he said this. And I will put enmity, literally, I will put Seth between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So do you see the connection there? Seth is being understood as the enmity. That's what his name means. He's to be, she's seeing him as the enmity between the enemy and God. So he's going to be, that's how she's seeing him. Eve had hoped that her son Seth was this appointed seed that God had spoken. The Midrash Rabbah, picks up on this clue as well. It says in uh, Midrash Rabbah 12.5, Why does Eve say God has appointed me another seed? Tankuma said that in the name of Rabbi Kuzith, she alluded to the seed which arise from another source, that is, the seed that is King Messiah. What does the Midrash mean when it speaks of Messiah as the seed that arises from another source? It's very interesting. On one level, it's making a reference to Ruth, the Moabitess. So what you're going to start finding from Genesis 3.15 on is what I call the scarlet thread of redemption. That's a very vague prophecy of Messiah. It's messianic, and it is the first gospel. But man, like, that's not very specific. But it does get us to Seth. So it started with, okay, it's going to come from Eve. Okay, God, well, everybody comes from Eve, so that doesn't help us a whole lot, right? Okay, what's going to come from Seth? 
okay, all right? What you're going to keep finding is, though, it's going to get tighter and tighter and tighter. It's going to get more specific, right? It's going to come from Seth, and then it's going to come from Noah, but it's going to come from Shem, and then it's going to come from Abraham, but, and then it's going to come from Isaac, and then it's going to come from Jacob, and then it's going to come from Judah, right? It, keeps, it gets tighter and tighter, but also with each kind of tightening spiral, we're also given clues. We're given other clues. We're given other shadows. Again, think about the road to Emmaus. This is what Jesus is unraveling for these guys. How everything in the scriptures was written about me. And he began in Bereshit, no doubt. No doubt. One of the things is the seed that arises from another source. It's a very interesting turn of phrase there. It's first understood to mean Ruth. Because Ruth, in part of that tightening spiral, is going to be a progenitor of the Messiah. But she is from another source. Why is she from another source? Because she's not a Jew. She's not of Israel. What is Ruth? She's a Moabitess, right? The grandmother of King David is a Moabitess. She's called another source throughout Jewish commentary. And in many ways, she fulfills that role. She's in the line of Messiah. We're told that this line from Genesis 3.15, it's going to come from another source. But we as believers and kind of on the other side of the Emmaus Road also know another phrase to understand or another meaning for a seed that arises from another source. In the gospel story, Jesus is the seed of the woman born of the virgin, though she is conceived through He's conceived through the Holy Spirit. He's the seed from another source. So you even get that hint all the way back in Genesis that the Messiah, the Redeemer, the one that's going to be the enmity between us and the enemy, the one that's going to put an end to this, the one that's going to suffer a death blow in the process, the one whose heel is going to be pierced, right? It's going to come from another source. So it's going to be something different about them all right making it personal so i want to conclude each week by kind of looking at giving or giving you something to think about through the week and whether you're someone who enjoys journaling it's a way you can journal uh whether you like to get together with other people and discuss what's going on and you know this week's portion it gives you some discussion or just in your own personal private prayer life can give you something to think about because the thing about each week in the portions is they are tied they are intimately tied with the times we're living in and not just like geopolitical global times but they're tied to what you're going to be going through they're going to be tied to something you're experiencing in your life that's how they are that's how it was derived by Moses. When you read a Torah scroll, these divisions are clearly marked out. And so each week, if you read with focus and thought, the Torah portion will speak to your life. For those who may be new to Torah study, you may be thinking, that sounds crazy, that sounds hokey pokey. I would simply encourage you, I talk to someone who's done it just one time, done one cycle, and they will absolutely tell you, I'm not lying. 
And for those who've done many cycles, you absolutely know I'm not lying. It absolutely always connects. It always speaks to your life. So in making it personal, I want to just give you maybe a head start maybe on some of that. It doesn't mean it's the only way it can connect, but it could help project you that way. So I want us to begin by thinking about Michelangelo. It's one of my favorite stories in general about life is this story of Michelangelo. Michelangelo was once asked, how is it that you create such wondrous, amazing, beautiful sculptures and works of art? How in the world do you do it? How can something so innovative, so ingenious, how can that emanate from mere mortal hands? And when Michelangelo was asked that question, without skipping a beat, he responded, before I even begin my work, the sculpture is already complete within the block of marble. In fact, Michelangelo was known for taking the rejected chunks of marble. He didn't go find the finest. He would often take the garbage marble. He just had this block of marble. And he said, it's already complete. The sculpture's already there. He said, my job is simply to discover it. It's already there. I don't have to do anything. That was his secret, he said. I don't have to do anything because it's already there. I simply have to discover it and chisel away all the stuff that doesn't belong. Once I get rid of what doesn't belong, the sculpture's there. You catch his perspective? That's the mindset that I want you to have this week as you study Bereshit. The dormant potential already exists in you beneath the surface. The job of the artist is to simply discover that which is hidden within and transform the concealed into the revealed by just chiseling away the junk that doesn't belong. You see, you have already been created in the image of God. It's part of this week's portion. You've already been created in the image of God. You have already been declared by your creator to be a good creation. It is good. Humanity is the sixth day. Last in action is first in thought. It's one of your tools. It's very important in the Bible too. Last in action is first in thought. Humanity, the human being, was the last action of the Creator, which meant it was His original thought. You are already that. You are already that. You don't have to become that. You don't have to do anything to get there. But it is within a bunch of marble that is hard and a lot of stuff stuck to you that doesn't belong. So with this mindset, we begin our Torah journey by considering creation. 
the creation of our very self, but I also want you to think about it as recreation or the new creation through the lens that everything is already complete within this block of marble that is me. It's already here from the original creation. As humans, we all have cravings and yearnings. However, these cravings tend to be limited to which we've already experienced. That's part of what keeps us back. For example, many people crave pizza or ice cream or steak and other delicious foods, but this is only because they've tasted them before. I don't know anyone who craves kosher bugs like locusts. This is because we only yearn for the foods We've tasted before. Is this not the challenge with the child? Try this. Nope, I hate it. I know for a fact you've never had this. Hate it. Why? Because they've never experienced it before. Do you, for instance, crave the remarkable cuisine, Yagabalula? Probably not because it doesn't exist. I just made it up. We typically only crave what we've previously tasted. And that's a limitation we impose upon ourselves. But you see, it's not really the case. If that was truly the case all the time, why would we ever crave things like wisdom, greatness, significance, or perfection? The reason why we crave those things that we haven't experienced before or experienced on the level we'd like, the reason is because we have tasted them before. In the womb, at our creation, in the very logos, memra of God, our creator, before the creation of the world and our physical entrance into it, just as is stated in the apostolic writing of Paul in Ephesians, before the foundations of the world, before Genesis 1-1, I already knew you. You were already you before Genesis 1-1 even, from the foundation of it all. We were all once in this state of our authentic self, our true self. I'm not talking about moral perfection self or any of that, just who you were supposed to be, warts and all, fiery temper or timid personality and all. You were already who you are supposed to be. There is a true self. But we have a bunch of marble around it. Bereshit gives us the energy. It gives us the memra, the lagos, the word of God to begin that chiseling process. Not to transform us into something that we're not, but to simply reveal who we already are. And with this principle in mind, let's explore the process of human growth. Many people grow from the outside in. They look around at their friends, their family, the society, and then they shape themselves to fit that. That's how they begin and do their chiseling process. The clothes they wear, the things they talk about, their values and goals become a reflection of their external environment. In other words, many people feel like they are a slab of clay and they mold themselves simply to their environment and to the molds that others create for them. 
But what if we realize, much like Michelangelo's sculptures, that we too are already uniquely and perfectly framed beneath the surface? And by perfectly, I don't mean moral perfection or anything like that, or that you're not supposed to sin or any of that stuff. I mean, there's a you. There's a you. And what if our job in life isn't to mold ourselves to everyone around us, but to take a slab of stone and to simply remove the junk that's attached to us? What if our job is simply to discover who we already truly are and then to chisel away the extra material and then express our inner image-bearing self to the world? This is one of the works of Messiah. Messiah most certainly came and he lived and he died for the forgiveness of sins. But as I read the Gospels, you know, I try to, probably for the last six months, I try to read the Gospel of Mark every day, once a day, minimum, once a day. And one of the things I have been convinced of is Jesus came as part of his redemption of humanity, of you and me, is to simply show us what it is to be a human. Because much of what we do isn't human behavior, and we don't often act like humans. And Mark, he not only restores us to this divine relationship with our creator, but he restores us to our humanity. Growth isn't about becoming great. It's about becoming you. Learning isn't about discovery. It's about self-discovery. You're a masterpiece covered with stone. Your job is simply to express it. This is why the Torah compares man to a tree in Deuteronomy. An apple seed already contains within it all the potential that it'll ever have. Every branch it'll ever have the thickness of its trunk, every piece of fruit it will ever bear is already contained in the seed. It simply spends its life expressing that potential that is latent within it. You never hear an apple seed looking around and saying, where are the pears? As human beings, we too are created with a potential latent within us. We are divine image bearers. We are divine image bearers. I think sometimes, you know, I, what is it, February, I hit the big 5-0. I've already become a grumpy old man. Um, 23, 24 years in the ministry, you begin to self-reflect. Sometimes I think I may, the only message I was ever meant to proclaim to people was to remind them, you already know you're broken. You already know you're broken. There's not a person in here that's going to tell me they're not broken. I don't got to tell you you're broken. But I think a lot of you have forgotten. You were created in the image of God. You're an image bearer. You are an image bearer. And you, uniquely you, is in fact what God wants you to be. And that is pleasing to God. When you are you, you are pleasing God. 
And so instead of looking at our original sin, I don't, there's something that goes before that. Where, when does sin, sin this week's reading, when does sin come into the play? What chapter? Chapter three. Chapter three. There's two chapters before that. Does it speak about human beings before chapter three? So there's something that precedes sin. That's what's original. And what's original about you? It's not that you're a piece of garbage rolled in white fluffy snow. It's that you are child of God created in his image. Created for the garden. Created for good things. Created for wonderful things. That's original. That's what needs to be restored. That's what we've lost. Bereshit gives us time to contemplate that and to think about that. True happiness comes when you're being you, when you're on the journey to becoming your true self. And it'll be a journey you're on your whole life. Spending each day bringing out more and more of you, becoming more and more of what you were meant to become in and through the power of the working of the Holy Spirit, and because of what our Messiah has done for us, and because he's freed us, what he has freed us to be is to be ourselves. He's broken that which would bind us. So instead of becoming a mirror and reflecting everything around you, become a projector. Build something majestic and beautiful within ourselves and express it outward into the world. So I'll give you some action points to think about this week. Explore your talents and interests and think about the following. What are you naturally drawn to in life? Just on your own. Maybe you've kept that a secret. And maybe by not keeping it a secret anymore, you're cutting off a big chunk of marble that doesn't belong there. But what are you drawn to? It may even shock some of us. You might tell us you're really passionate about something and we would never have guessed it. But when you share it, you're chipping away the marble. What are you drawn to in life? What areas of life are you most passionate about? And how can you use that to uniquely contribute to the world? How can you make a difference through that? And then, also choose one new skill, one new activity, something outside of yourself, outside of your comfort zone, and commit some time every day to working on it. And just see where that takes you. Think about the story of Michelangelo. See, I want to argue Genesis tells the story of a beautiful sculpture of Adam and Eve, humanity. Genesis 3 comes and it gets encased. It gets encased with sin. And it very much is one that we cannot break free from ourselves and we absolutely need a Savior to come and break it for us. But he's done that. He has done that. Therefore, we can now escape the marble that encased us and going back to being the masterpieces we were originally created to be. Let's close there. Close with the blessing. Baruch Adonai noten hatara. Blessed are you, Lord God, who has given to us the gift that is the Torah. Amen.
Go in peace, shalom and selah. We'll see you next week, same time, same place, as we will be looking at portion Noach and continuing with the sun found in the scriptures. Hi, everyone. Thank you for engaging this teaching. You know, we at Emmanuel have as one of our goals to make our teachings available online to anyone, everywhere, at any time, whether that's through a podcast or our YouTube channel or an MP3 download. It is our gift to you, and we want you to use it however you see fit. Also, if you feel uh, motivated or desire to support future teachings, you can do so with the donate button at the bottom of our teaching page. That's found at immlutheran.org forward slash teaching. Again, thank you for participating in our teachings here and hope to see you or engage with you somehow, some way, somewhere. God bless.